Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Thursday, June 24th, and this Pentecost season, we study the inspired and true Word of God, and the Holy Spirit helps us put on our Christ goggles in 2 Kings chapter 17. Chapter 17 is a turning point in the history of God's people, and it's quite tragic when you read it, because when you have continuous idolatry, it's not something you kind of just keep going with. It has consequences, and it was, like I said, very tragic for God's people to be put in the hands of another country and kingdom. It seems okay for parts because they start talking about fearing the Lord, but there were other issues and other bigger issues and other issues of faith. And that is an issue we always have to remember, which is why we dig into the the scriptures today and the Holy Spirit leads us. And we do this knowing the gifts are ready, ready for you. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To strengthen us by God's Word this morning, we welcome Pastor Philip Hoppe of Peace Lutheran Church in Finlandson, Minnesota, and St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Hey, glad to be back with you again today, studying God's Word and uh, taking this ancient history here and trying to uh, apply it to our lives and our situations where we live today. And it is quite challenging, and that's one one of the joys I have of having you on today is that you're one that likes to study the Bible. You like to uh, dig deeper into the Bible, and maybe you just... uh, um, you're able to fake it very well, that you know it very well, but we, <laughs> nonetheless, we are here to study God's word and um, um, especially chapter 17. How does this apply to our life today is an important question. But before we get there, Pastor Hoppy, tell us what's going on for you, your family and the work of the saints in Finlandson and Bruno. Well, things kind of are uh, cruising along here. Of course, in the summer, it seems like there's always a few things that go away. But for me, that always seems to not quite just result in nothing to do, right? But kind of getting back at some of those things that have been put off during the the busier uh, seasons. But other than that, uh, we're enjoying some nice weather other than the fact that uh, uh, we could use uh, a lot of rain, at least according right. to you know our our uh, estimation. We know the Lord knows what He's doing, but to our estimation, things are getting pretty dry around here. So that's a, I know a big concern on our people's hearts, and uh, as we just go about our, our work, uh, both of you know being God's people in His church, and also then you know scattering to the various places we live and work and play, and trying to to uh, witness to people and also just uh, show them Christ's love. And as we do that, a reminder to our listeners, if you're one that likes to travel to the Boundary Waters or to the Iron Range of Minnesota, you will pass right by Pastor Hoppy's place on Highway 35. So what a great opportunity for me to invite our listeners to stop on the way on Highway 35. What, an hour before you get to Duluth? Yeah, it's right about an hour south of Duluth. And yeah, stop by and, uh, you know, uh, I know Pastor Finneran and I have got together once at least uh, out at the uh, gas station out on the interstate. And it's it's not too bad. We even had a pizza, if I remember right. So, you yep. know, let me know and we can arrange something. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just a reminder to our listeners, 
we are here. All of our guests are ready to have visitors. So here's your opportunity. Um, <laughs> so today we're here to study the word of God. So pastor, uh, we begin our time in prayer. Yes. Almighty God, we come to you uh, this day. We pray that as we open your word, indeed, your spirit would be here to guide us, uh, that we would receive both the warning and correction of your word, but also in the end, the wonderful comfort of your gospel, that even though your people turn uh, away from you, even though we are often faithless, you are faithful to us. Uh, Grant us your spirit this day as we begin now to study your word. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Pastor, as we look at chapter 17 of 2 Kings, I was thinking about this um, recently as I was studying this, is a lot of times when you read the Bible, you'll be able to say, this is my favorite chapter. So you're like, oh, Galatians uh, 2 or 3 or Ephesians 2 or John 3 or uh, Revelation, whatever chapter you want to choose. And you say, that's my favorite chapter. I love that chapter. But when you go through 2 Kings, you don't quite, at least I don't know, maybe chapter five with Naaman and leprosy or something, but you don't really have a favorite chapter that comes from Second Kings. And chapter 17 is really a time of grieving, I would say. It's like a lot, everything has come to a head for the people of Israel, for sure. And obviously, Judah's not that far behind them. So, Pastor, what leads us up to chapter 17? And give us some background or introductory thoughts that you have that will help us out this morning. Yeah, I think ultimately, like you said, it is it is a time of grieving in in Second Kings uh, chapter seventeen, because while there have been consequences throughout for the faithlessness of God's people, uh, in Second uh, Kings seventeen here we really get the consequence for the northern tribes, right? And so um, it, it's almost like you know if you were to consider you know, a child that, that has sort of been testing out uh, how far uh, they can go, uh, you know, astray or uh, how much they can get away with. Uh, and then finally, the parent, uh, you know, has to sort of lay down the law and really get serious. And that to me is kind of what happens here. Again, not to, not to suggest we've, you know, seen in this book, lots of things that are serious in nature. Uh, And yet this is really, you know, the thing for the Northern Kingdom where you go, man, here is the result of what they have been doing, right? They are literally going to be dragged away out of their homes and their homeland, they're going to be scattered to the point where, quite frankly, right, biblical scholars and others, you know, say these are, you know, these people often become called the lost tribes, right? They're just kind of disappear off the historical uh, picture. Um, And, you know, when you think about from the glory of coming into the promised land to the leaving here of the Northern Kingdom, it is quite um, you know, a different situation and, and tragically so. And that is, it's not surprising, but how much of tragedy is, is not surprising. But when you, you see it and you come back and then you look at those chapters previously that we've studied, it isn't that surprising that there was an ultimate demise, especially when you look at the Assyrian kingdom. So I wanted to start here a little bit because Assyria becomes a major part of what we're talking about. Do you have any thoughts to begin with about Assyria and its influence? Even though to this point, we don't know much about it. I think if I'm right, we don't really hear about it until chapter 16. 
Um, but it has a major part in world history before this point. And do you have any thoughts on that about Assyria? And I mean, they're just north of them there. Any thoughts on Assyria to start us out? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we, when we look at Assyria here, you know, one of the things that I saw often, you know, is this phrase just that they were kind of the the first real empire in the sense of, uh, you know, they had some organization about themselves to kind of control the people that were under their influence. Before this, you obviously had people that would conquest um, and would go out and take over lands. But it even seems like some of that would sometimes fall apart because of the lack of any organization. And Assyria is really the first one that that breaks out and kind of figures out how to do this thing. Um, and again, every empire after will sort of have their own way of trying to manage such a large territory with so many people. Uh, but Assyria really, you know, starts off here uh, by their growing in influence and just scope, right? I mean, they're really in control of quite a large uh, area, uh, and they're conquering people all the time. And because, as we'll talk about, they kind of, one of their methods, right, is they like to take the people out of where they're living, those that, you know, aren't killed in battle or anything, and move them, and then kind of take people from another area that have been conquered and move them into that land. And because they do that, they actually seem to have quite a bit of success uh, that it really seems, uh, what do you want to say? It's 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 really depressing to the people or it, it, it disconnects them. You know, if you're if you're still living in your land uh, and yet someone's ruling over you, you kind of feel like we got a shot. We're still here. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but they, you know, the Assyrians kind of figured this out that they were going to do this deportation thing. And in doing so, uh, they were really going to make it uh, so that these nations almost never reemerge. Now, we, I won't say historically that's true, you know, with everyone that Assyria dealt with, but that's really the scope. The, the other thing is they were not afraid to be nasty, right? They weren't, uh, they were not nice, kind, gentle people. They didn't come in and say, you know, we would like you to move to this other city now. Right? No, they uh, indeed would uh, drag you away quite literally. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, so big, nasty, organized with a plan, I guess is how I'd describe Assyria. And one of the one that struck me was a number of maps that are out there, specifically in our Lutheran Study Bible on page 609. It shows the scope of how big Assyria really got. This goes into probably 100 years um, uh, later in history, even to the point of about 627 B.C. Right now we're at the 700s, mid 700s era. And it just it covers the spoke, uh, the, the excuse me. Um, it covers the, the breadth of land, you know, going out to Nineveh and going out to the Persian Gulf, going as south as almost to Egypt, um, to Sinai, uh, going as far north as Tarsus. Um, it really is a, a scope that reminds us that this was a, a, a big area that the only way, if, if God was going to like only support those who were the biggest and greatest in the land, while it would not be Israel, it would not be Judah, it would be Assyria. So, it's just a reminder of God's faithfulness and how God works through lowly people, not great kingdoms, in order to do his work. But you know what? We're going to get into that, and we're going to reveal more of that when we get to the text. So are we ready to start, Pastor? Yeah, let's let's get into it. All right. Well, let's begin. Open up your Bibles. A reminder to everybody. 
that we will be reading from the English Standard Version of Holy Scripture, starting in chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the king of the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured a Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the harbor, the river Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So right there we see, Pastor, um, the ultimate demise of Israel. Tell us what you found here in these first six verses. Well, even, you know, an interesting note to get started is that we're told, you know, in the 12th year of, of Ahaz is when Hosea uh, becomes king. And yet, if you look, right, uh, in just a couple chapters before, we're actually told that sort of his uh, coup attempt to take over, not an attempt, I, I should say in a successful attempt, um, actually happened uh, in the fourth year um, of Ahaz. And so what, it, what does that mean? It means, well, we've got these eight years, essentially, where he's defeated the previous king, but he's not quite king yet. And I think of as we've been looking through the Northern Kingdom, we just see that this shouldn't shock us that much, that there's chaos everywhere. And these kings, especially the closer we get to the exile, are fighting against each other. Uh, some rule for such a short period of time because, you know, there's another king that comes up and does something to them. So I think that just shows the chaos of the moment that there might have actually been eight years in there where we don't even know who the king officially is or that there's enough, you know, uh, people contesting it that we don't know. Um, and yet at the same time, we get this interesting note that, you know, um, uh, this king, Hosea, is, uh, he's bad, but he's not as bad as some of the others, right? He's certainly not Ahab or something like that. Um, and uh, it's kind of an interesting thought then to think that this um, this event of the exile, or, or more properly, usually, I guess we call it the deportation here for the Northern Kingdom, probably to help us remember uh, uh, the exile in the South. But when we really, you know, look at this, we, we get this idea um, that the kings of Israel before are not, are, are probably worse than the current king. And yet this happens during his reign. Um, and that may strike us as odd. And yet I think as we've been studying, we just see that this is a culmination, right? This is not just about God punishing Hosea, right? He's punishing mm -hmm. all these kings that have come before. By this point, right, they've been in the promised land for 200 years about, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they've had 19 different kings in the northern kingdom. And 
yeah, all of that history, as you guys have been covering, right, is is mostly bad, right? I mean, you get, you know, when you're studying the Southern Kings, you at least get a, a few happy moments, right? But but in the North, uh, to say somebody's not as bad as the other seems to be about as good as you as you can do there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but you just you get so this is this is really the point is that this is not about an immediate consequence for an immediate action here. This is about God finally deciding that it's time to bring this ultimate consequence about his people. Um, and he does so by bringing this great, uh, you know, king of Assyria uh, who's going to come, right, put the king in prison. I mean, you know, God's people are, are sort of floundering, especially again, Northern Kingdom are floundering. They're always trying to figure out who can help us, who can help us. And again, they should say, oh, yeah, the Lord God Almighty, he could help us. But instead, they seemed that, well, we think Assyria is the major power. We'll pay them off, you know. Now, oh, wait, Egypt is kind of growing in power. Maybe we should go with them, um, you know. And, and there's just kind of this overall chaos in every way in the northern kingdom. And then it kind of becomes manifest, the the ultimate chaos at the hand of Assyria, where they just come in uh, and besiege the city of Samaria, the capital city, um, and ultimately then uh, capture that and carry people away uh, into all of these lands. Um, the last thing I mentioned this before, so I'll just mention it real quick. In Amos, uh, the prophet Amos had, you know, uh, said, uh, this is Amos 4, 2, and 3, if people want to look it up, but it says, the Lord God had sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And kind of from what we know of the Assyrians, this is a literal thing they like to do, which was sort of put a fish hook through people's lips, chain them together, and this is how they would deport people. Uh, likely the people were also stripped naked before this. So just, I mean, imagine that scene, I suppose not too long, right? It's not a, a beautiful scene to imagine, but this is what is happening. And these are the people of God that have been brought into the promised land. And now instead of, you know, think of the glory of them going to, you know, Jericho at the beginning. And now the shame of them walking around uh, hooks through their lips being dragged out of the promised land. It, it's truly tragic. And that's why these first six verses are really a. I felt like it was a time where like you you have to leave somewhere, you know, and you feel that grief of having to leave. You drive away from that home or you drive away from this. And then you maybe come back and you realize it's not the same as it once was. That kind of grief that we all feel nowadays. And then you take this situation and it is 10 times worse than that kind of grief. It's not just that you're being um, uh, degraded, like you said, fish hook in your lips and you're being you're being paraded naked. You, that is absolutely awful. But you're being taken away from your home. You're being taken away from all of this. So it is everything we can even imagine with the grief that we experience of a change or things aren't the same or we have a physical issue or whatever it might be. But it is 10 times worse because they they know that they had done wrong. And we're going to find out more about that. But I, I just really felt a major amount of grief just reading these first six verses of all that the Lord had done for them and then how it all came falling apart. So, Pastor, anything else in those first six verses before we move on? 
No, I think just, you know, again, uh, those that are more interested can go back and kind of get, there's, you know, different Assyrian kings that uh, end up being involved in this time. But uh, ultimately, you know, that it doesn't totally matter to the story because all those kings are ultimately there because God has allowed them to be and has even, right, called them to come and bring punishment upon his people. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, it's not just big bad Assyria uh, coming in to cause trouble. It is God punishing his people, and that that increases the grief even more. We continue on, verses 7, and we'll go all the way through verse 18, where we find out, we kind of have an idea of why this happened, but we find out even more why it happened to God's people. Verse 7, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs and the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And before they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that made with their fathers and warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. They made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. They burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So, Pastor, unlike other times in the Bible where we'll see destruction, and even in today's world, we are kind of left with, why? Like, why did that happen? We, we don't get the full story. But here, we get the full story. There is no question about why they were deported from their homeland. We know why. And why was that? Well, as I was saying there, you know, we like to kind of say, well, Assyria did this. And it's certainly true, right? And I don't think there's any trouble saying that Assyria wanted to do this, that they carried it out with joy and all these kind of things. Uh, but in the end, we are told here that this did not happen just simply because, you know, Assyria grew to a place where they wanted uh, to take over the Israelites. Ultimately, it happened because the Lord God was punishing them for all the stuff you guys have been studying here, uh, you know, for weeks now, uh, going through all of this. That was the reason, like you said, I think it is important that here at the end, it's just said clearly. It said, here are the things. 
Uh, I just recently, uh, we've got a Bible study uh, with our men's group here where we are going through a book of the Bible every time we gather. So, of course, it's very, uh, you know, short what we can cover, right? We don't get into a lot of detail, but I've, I've enjoyed it in the sense of you kind of come away going, what was the point of this overall book? And so if we take, right, uh, Second Kings here, uh, and we look back then and we say, well, okay, all of this was sort of predicated on the fact that they were going to go into the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy, right, kind of says how they're supposed to live. If we see if there's an overall thing, the book of Deuteronomy, and again, the rest of the Pentateuch as well, but they basically says, right, the main thing is you're supposed to live as set apart people. And then you can almost say like, okay, how do we do that? And God could say, there's two main things. One, walk according to my statutes, right? In faith, right? Looking to me for every good, but walk in my statutes and my ways that I've given to you as this great treasure, this great bit of wisdom that the other nations uh, should and at times will uh, be jealous of, right? And then the other one is, and don't, don't become like the other nations, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the two things that are going to set them apart as God's holy people, to live according to his ways and to not adopt the ways of the other people. And yet, when we get this list of all the things they did, it is directly against those two, right? There's a, that one passage where uh, the ESV, you know, says they did secretly against the Lord their God. And it, literally in the Hebrew, it says they they covered up the words of Yahweh or, or of God, right? That uh, they, they just didn't want to look at them. That's the secret part is we don't want to even ponder what God has said. And so there's taking these wonderful ways of God and dismissing them. They did that. And yet then they also went about worshiping, you know, every other God and taking on the practices, right? Even to the point where they are sacrificing their own sons and daughters uh, as offerings to these false gods um, and, and you know, putting up uh, these asherim, these uh, poles essentially, right? Uh, likely made of trees, uh, you know, and I mean, just you just have to get this, that here they are supposed to be set apart and they do the two things that will make them to be like all the other nations. And therefore now they get, punished, right? They get uh, sent out uh, and they don't get this treasured possession of the land either. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really tragic. They're doing all this stuff. And, and one thing that jumped out to me too in these verses is when he speaks about his father, the fathers, um, it says, you know, they were idolatrous, but it says, you know, they did not believe in the Lord, their God. Mm. Um, and, and this is ultimately it, right? Is we sometimes like to think of kind of the people of Israel just as, well, they're doing some bad stuff, right? But, and we like to think of ourselves that way too. I think this is why we do it, right? Like, oh, I'm doing some bad stuff, but I'm still okay. And God kind of comes out and says, no, if you're leaving behind my ways. And if you're worshiping other idols, whether we're talking about literal statues or just other things that we fear, love, and trust in, um, it actually leads to unbelief, right? And that's ultimately what God punishes here, is their lack of faith and trust in him that's manifested by all these other things. And this is something I want to hit on a little bit beyond our break is verse 14. They would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. I like how you talked about the faith end, but also that part of not listening and being stubborn. But right now we need to take our break. We are studying 2 Kings chapter 17 with Pastor Philip Hoppy, and we'll be right back. 
On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org And welcome back. We are studying 2 Kings chapter 17 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. And as Pastor, you said so well that we, that the problem was a problem of faith. You know, we can't quite say as Christians that there are no consequences for our actions. You know, for example, you kind of said it in a way that makes us realize and we're not living in a godly way, that this can lead to a lack of faith. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's what happens here is that that they don't live a godly life. And then that leads to a lack of faith, but also has these two things that I think are very important. That th- Verse 14 of chapter 17, they would not listen and were stubborn. And I think that's <laughs> that's 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 very humbling because you realize how that then then can lead to other situations. And then I realize this too, Pastor of my own lack of listening and my own stubbornness. So I think this also relates to us and re- makes us realize like, wow, this is something that we have to repent and look back to the Lord all the time. Also, any thoughts? Yeah, this is, this is for certain a warning to us. I mean, the Bible likes to, you know, pick out kind of that wilderness wandering period as the warning about those who, you know, cross the Red Sea and yet don't make it to the promised land. But there's mm-hmm. certainly a similar warning here in this passage that, you know, we can even quote unquote be living in the promised land. Uh, and yet, and you, you hit it here. How does this all start? You stop listening and you do so stubbornly. Mm. And again, like you said, we all do this, right? We all can look and say, boy, there are these things that God says that we just don't want to take seriously or we don't want to hear at all. Uh, and then we can see also, you know, just more widely in our in our world and even sometimes sadly just within the Christian church, that there's just this stubborn, we don't want to listen. And we think at the time, oh, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Again, think of a a kid not listening to their parents, but they're like, well, I'm not leaving behind my parents because I didn't listen to one thing they said. Well, again, at the time, we don't think that either. When we stop listening to one word of the Lord, we think, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But when we do that and when we do it stubbornly, that is ultimately, again, what leads to unbelief uh, and that we have to take very seriously, right? We can even fall away from the Lord uh, if we do not continue to listen to him. And that's a reminder for us as we look at the the next number of verses that this just didn't happen in a day. And that's where we we continuously see in First and Second Kings, the long-suffering patient God that we have, the, the the Lord Yahweh, who is a God who continuously comes back to his people. He is he is long suffering as we as we describe it, and he is patient because this just didn't start with uh Hosea, you know, it just didn't start with Ahaz. I mean it started a long time ago. So let's hear about that now. We're gonna read verses nineteen through twenty three. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God and walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. 
And the Lord Yahweh rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of the plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nabat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from the following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he has spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel had, was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So I think there's kind of a double a double meaning here. Jeroboam, you have Jeroboam the second, but then you have the first Jeroboam, where it talks about the sins that Jeroboam did. And so this was nothing new. It comes down to why we even have a divided kingdom. Um, so... Any thoughts on on what he tells us here in these next verses? Well, yeah, I think you're you're exactly right that it it really takes us through the whole history of Israel very quickly, right? I think we are going back mostly here to the first, right, of those 19 kings uh, in the divided kingdom. And we see that these problems were there. And this is where we do get, right, a lot of this text today is sort of God's punishment. And so, you know, it, it is a word of warning. But again, like you said, think about the fact that when Jeroboam did all this and directly disobeyed God and set up these high places uh, in Dan and Bethel and all these kind of different things, God could have removed them immediately and done so justly. And then, you know, go forward to Ahab, right? And all the stuff with uh, Elijah and, and all those things, Jezebel, all that kind of stuff. Again, you know, we're told there, this was the most evil king ever. And God could have removed them then. Now, again, it, it is in the mystery of God how he decides it's finally time, right? He makes that determination. But we never want to let it be lost on us how long God has tarried in the hopes that his people will repent, believe, and be saved, right? And he is He is that way with us as well. We always have to know, right, uh, the end could come at any time, so we don't want to be complacent. But when we look back on how God has, you know, walked with us, even when we were not walking with him, uh, it should bring us, you know, great joy and, and cause us to wonder at God's nature. And it's very humbling to read when it talks about how they followed the commands and the ways of Israel. So they didn't, <laughs> Judah, Judah was now going to follow in the same way, which you would think if they even heard of the story of what the Assyrians were doing to the Israelites, you know, the fish, fish hooks in the mouth and the nakedness and the degrading way that they're brought all their country. And as we'll find out a little bit later here, that other countries are brought into their homeland. And so there's nothing left that you think there'd be some form of repentance and a turn back to the Lord. But it appears that it was not, and if it was, it was not a real strong repentance and moving back to the Lord whatsoever. So a good reminder for us, maybe we need to listen, drop and drop, drop our stubbornness and to be able to see all that the Lord has guiding us towards and repentance and obviously the forgiveness our Lord gives as well. So any other thoughts on these verses before we move on? No, I think we can move on. I mean, except that I guess for us, as we read it, um, we should just say, yeah, we need to learn from Israel, right? It, Judah did not, uh, sadly, and we're going to see that, but let us not make the same mistake. All right. So let's continue on because now we see 
a part of the um, the ruggedness, the um, ah, I'm trying to think of a good word for it, the excruciating pain that the Assyrians would pe- put people through. Uh, how would we say that? Pastor, I'm a loss for words right now. How would we describe the Assyrians? Yeah, I mean, it's not very, you know, technical, but I, I do like the word that they were nasty. You know, they were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were uh, indeed, yeah, they just, they were not shy about uh, their work, right? They were not timid. They were not worried that they were going to offend people. They were just going to go about doing things in whatever way was kind of the easiest. And and the other thing we do, I think, see with the Assyrians and probably most empires is that in order to keep people in line, you have to shame them, right? I mean, now again, I'm not saying that. Please don't listen and say, yeah, I should follow this in my life also, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But in the sense of when we're talking about the ways of the world, this, this was kind of critical to how they caused people to stay in line after the initial conquering was that they kind of debased the people to such an extent where they kind of lost the ability to have great hopes, uh, to have great dreams. And that's, I think, what we see happening here. Well, we'll continue on, verses 24 through 28. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthath, Ava, Hamath, and Sephavarim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the Lord of the God of land of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there, and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now this is a a fascinating part of the story that I don't... I, I have not noticed very efficiently, I would say, in my Bible reading throughout the years. And it's interesting to me that you have uh, all these people from a different land, like you said. Um, they come there. They, they're not part of this land. Well, the Lord kind of gives us a little bit of, a, you know, hey, these are not my people kind of reminder. They're not fearing me. And he sends it in the realm of lions. You know, lions come. And then beyond that, the king of Assyria is told, like, yeah, there's some people dying there. And he's like, all right, well, maybe we should send one priest back and maybe this will help the situation. So it's kind of a bizarre, what is going on? Pastor, how would you help us out understand these verses? Yeah, I think there's two things kind of going on. And one is, again, from the perspective of God, right? This is really a statement about who he is, right? That he is the God of all peoples, all places, all lands. Um, and he makes this known, in this case, yes, through these lions. And again, I, I read one person that, you know, said probably right after they've kind of come in and seized the city, right, after the, this long siege, uh, probably everything is so, you know, laid low and there aren't a lot of people there, period, that these wild animals kind of, you know, just take over in general. So it's, again, we don't know that these are, are next necessarily just, you know, God brings these lions 
minds out of nothing, right, <laughs> into existence for this. But he does certainly use them just as he has used the Assyrians uh, to make this point that, again, all people are accountable to him. And I think we can say particularly the people that are living in this land, he wants to make certain they understand this. Now, from the flip side, I think the people that are living there, and certainly the king of Assyria, they're probably operating with a different assumption, which is not that God is one, right? That there's only one God, but that they do have this view in their mind that each land has its own God and you better sort of placate that God or else he'll be wrathful. And so I think that's what we get from the king of Assyria. He hears people are dying. He goes, oops, we're, we're not doing a good job of worshiping the God of the land. So let's send back one of the priests. Uh, and the priest goes back. And again, you know, we want to take the word of God seriously here. It does say, you know, he taught them how they should fear the Lord. And yet, right, you wonder about these priests that are serving at Bethel and and <laughs> some of the things that have been going on there now for 200 years, whether uh, that priest even knew exactly, right, how to teach them to fear the Lord or whether he was uh, you know, had all sorts of false teachings that he brought with him as well. Uh, but certainly it is a, it is overall, I think the point is to, for us, as we look at it, to get this, that God is God over all people and he expects all people to fear, love and trust in him. And I think sometimes we can forget that, right? We can kind of look at the rest of the world outside of the church and not remember that they're accountable to God. I, I find this myself, like even when you're talking to other people, we tend to want to just go like, well, yeah, you believe this, I believe this, and not really just put it, no, we're both accountable to God, so we better know what's truth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really think that's part of what what we get uh, here in this uh, passage. But yeah, it's, it's one when I read again, too, you're like, oh, I think I remember that, and wow, that's quite a story. But there's a lot of that uh, in the book of Kings where you get these little details where you go... I don't know if I could have pulled that out if somebody just said, well, what, you know, what happened right after, uh, you know, the the deportation? Go, oh, remember the lion's bit? I don't, I don't know if I actually would remember that, right, had I not studied <laughs> yeah. it. So I'm glad, I'm glad that we got the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and it does show us, and we're going to have this a little bit more in these next verses, is just that tendency, which I think is very true for us today, is you will say, you have your truth, I have my truth. And then, you know, you have the common statement you'll hear, um, I want to speak my truth right now. And then we will take that same like understanding of, I think, uh, you know, Rummy 500 is the best game of card game of all time, you know, versus what Kings in the Corner or whatever game you play. I, you know, I don't play many card games, but you, like you say, well, I have my truth. You have your truth. OK, all right. Then we take that same realm. We put it into God. Almighty God and say, okay, you have your God thing over there and that's the God for this, this land. And then we have this God over here. The, uh, the Babylonians have theirs. The Avites have theirs. The Hamathites have theirs. The Sepharathims have theirs. And I keep saying that word wrong. And, and they have all their gods, right? And so just, you have your truth. I have mine. And I think that's something I really want us to take a hard look at because pastor you have you've you've touched on it and i really want us to be able to look at this this issue that's happening here is our same issue that we have in today's world so we'll continue on uh verses 29 through 33 and to think about this who is the one true god verse 29 but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the samaritans had made every nation the cities in which they lived 
the men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, and the men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashimah, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Savarvites burned their children in the fire of Adramelech, and Anamelech, the gods of Savarvame. And they feared the Lord and appointed among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord Yahweh, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Now, Pastor, these verses, and you're going to talk even more about this in our next passages that we have, they're doing something that we call um, syncretism. And I don't know if you want to go there quite yet, but that is something that you definitely have defined well. Um, and what is that and how does that relate to what they're doing and even in our world today? Yeah, so syncretism, right? Yeah, we'll make that our, you know, what is it, $10 word for the day or something like that. Although although I've been very happy that you've had to read all these place names and their gods and not me. You know, you, you said you mispronounced it once. And I think, well, that's why I haven't pronounced it even once, right? I, I, don't, I don't plan to start now. <laughs> that's right. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, but you get this, all these gods. And again, this, this, these people here, right? Get, we should get this, I guess, maybe right up front, just for the rest of our Bible knowledge and kind of going into the New Testament, where we tend to spend a lot of our time, is that this is kind of where these Samaritans, right? Like the good Samaritan uh, come from. And we get why were the Jews uh, who are still living in the promised land, right? When Jesus is there, why do they just despise these Samaritans, right? And the answer is because they did this syncretism thing so very well. They they would marry people that didn't have the same God as them. They would have shrines in which uh, one God and another God were being worshipped side by side, who otherwise probably those gods should have been at odds. Um, each one, each of these, you know, you'll get this with these guys that like to kind of be critics of the Bible, but they'll look at all these names of these gods and say, oh, they got that from this and that. Well, yeah, I think so in some extent, right? That they took something that they saw in one God and they made it their own. And then, you know, this weird thing, among that, they're throwing in the fear of the Lord, the fear of the real God, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's, I think you're right that this is a critical thing, especially for us Christian people to get in this moment, right? Because I think this is exactly what we're tempted to. I think there, I mean, there are people that are going to just deny God, curse his name. But I think far more, right? We're going to have these people and, and we already do. And again, we're all them to some extent at times, right? Where we want to say, I want to have the fear of the Lord and this other thing. Right. And I'm going to take this practice. Um, I don't really want to get into this like on the whole, I guess, today. But mm-hmm. I was listening to a story this week about yoga and I can't remember which state. It was either Arkansas or uh, uh, Texas was having this big battle about whether you could teach yoga in school. And they were kind of right. The one side was saying, come on, it's just a stretching practice and it's good. And the other side was saying, no, it's it's Buddhism. Right. And they, they actually came to kind of a 
compromise in the sense that what they said is you can do the stretching, but you can't do any of the like mantras or the teaching that often goes along with it. And again, you kind of listen to this and this was in like the public schools. And I thought it was kind of interesting because it was showing that there are still some people that are thinking like, we have to be careful here that we don't adopt practices that come from other religions because we can't do so without harming our true faith, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I don't think unless you want to take a definitive position on yoga today, you can go ahead. But <laughs> the one thing I will say is I thought the discussion was actually good because this is how we're tempted is to make subtle moves into practices that are associated with other gods or maybe in our world with atheism, with agnosticism. I can't say, boy, I got I got one of my words there. Okay. Um, all these different things. And we're tempted to take just a little bit of that, right? Let me grab a little science over here, right? And let me grab a little of this over here and we'll kind of put it all together. And yeah, I'm going to go back to the other stuff. I'm going to have to stop listening to God on a few things in order to let these other things in. And again, we tend to think we can do this and it's okay, right? And instead we should recognize that doing this is dangerous, right? Spiritual. Uh, and dangerous just in every way, right? Uh, once once we're offending God, right, everything gets thrown into to chaos. And so, yeah, I really think what we do see here at the end of, you know, this chapter is just this beautiful, uh, or, no, let me change that, this ugly description, ugly. Mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. of what all of us humans are tempted to do, right? Uh, and again, it's, it's so easy to disassociate ourselves and say like, well, pastor, I'm not going to like, you know, have a statue of Jesus and right next to it have a Buddha, uh, then, you know, uh, then, uh, you know, have a little shrine to Allah for Islam. I'm not going to do that. And again, I hope not, right? We may get people that actually go that far too. But again, we get these ideas, well, I want to take this cultural idea of what I'm supposed to do with my life, and I want to set that right next to what God tells us that we're supposed to do with our life. So maybe it's, you know, chasing after wealth, and God says, you know, no, we're to, you know, uh, follow him and chase after other people with the gospel message. And we want to say, I got to be able to set those right next to each other, and I got to be okay with that. And and again, we want to this is where I think Christian conversation is important in these discussions, uh, to have other people at church that that care enough about you and you about them that you can say, what are you holding on to here, right? You're getting, you know, really into this thing, <laughs> and I'm not sure it lines up with our faith, right? And to be able to do that with gentleness and kindness, I think we need that, right? Because otherwise we'll fall into this same trap. One of the, what I want to, I want to hit on this just for a moment. We have about six minutes left is one pastor I greatly respect was, we were talking about just a, something that we had to deal with in the church and, and, uh, and we were talking through it and trying to make sure we're, we're on the same page and that we're going through this in a, a very healthy way. And one of the comments that he made after we're talking about the situation is he said, okay, so let's think about this. What is the idol here? You know, because we have usually when there's a controversy or an issue, it's not just that, you know, my spouse is stubborn and I'm not, or my spouse doesn't listen and I do. 
Um, there's a there's a hidden idol in the midst of it, or maybe a very obvious idol. In this scenario, there's a very obvious idol that they're doing. Um, and they're saying, I have this. But we all have these idols. And I think a good question for us as Christians is what is the idol that I have? Like, for example, you use yoga. It isn't saying, okay, you can never do yoga. And if therefore, if you never do yoga, then you have a stronger faith. That's, that's not the situation. The issue is, why do I need to do yoga? And why would I need to say namaste? Why do I need to do all these other things when you could clearly do all these stretches without it? Um, you could do all these strengthening exercises without all of that. And so what are you trying to hold on to? What, what are you fear, loving, and trusting in more than God himself? And so this is a good question, and, and I can't unpack it right now. But just to say, where, what is the idol in this situation, I think is a good thing for us to use, maybe even on Sunday morning when we have that moment of silence to be able to think about our sins. Lord, take my idol. What is my idol? And Lord, fill me as I move forward. So those are some thoughts I have. Pastor, I want us to get through these last verses and then to hear your thoughts as we wrap things up. 34 to 41. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow the statutes or rules of the law of the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them. You shall not you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules of the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods and you shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all of your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations fear the Lord, and they also serve their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So, Okay, I want to highlight this one thing, and I want to hear your thoughts. Is that he says to this day they still do it in verse thirty-four, and they do not fear the Lord. So <clears throat> here it's basically saying you say you fear the Lord, but you then go and worship at the altar of another god. So then, therefore, you don't really fear the Lord. Any thoughts on these last verses where it is blatant? There basically is no faith if you think that you can have multiple faiths at the same time. Yeah, and I apologize for my Hebrew not being, you know, super great here, but I I think at least as I read this, right, that fear of the Lord here is the sort of doing of the worship of the God of Israel, right? That they are, that's what they're still putting on, right? I, I do the thing I'm supposed to do for the God of Israel, and then I do the thing over here that I'm supposed to do uh, for this other God. And I think taking it back to your question, which I really like, right? What is your idol? And the only thing I would add to it is find someone you can ask, what is my idol too? Right? Mm -hmm. Um, I I had a friend just recently that basically didn't use those words, but asked me that question. And I found it, I mean, it, it was one of the most humble things anyone's ever probably done, right? To, to say, I want you to reveal this to me, right? If you see something, I want you to reveal it. And so not only asking ourselves, but, you know, start maybe with your spouse. They probably know. <laughs> um, and find a good Christian friend that you can be, uh, you know, to one another a bit of it. Because we often see others' idols much clearer than our own. Right. Um, right. 
and so so do that. But I I think that is you know what we see going on here is they're they're putting on a show like they still have faith, and yet they're really dedicated to either something else or just all sorts of things. And again, I think with our modern world, this is something we see often is that people are dedicated not to one thing. They don't say, I believe in this. They're, they want a little bit of everything. And in so doing, though, they're ending up not worshiping the one true God. About a minute here, Pastor. I want you to highlight this before we get to to our end. It says there at the end, their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. What are the consequences when we what we do as fathers and mothers and as families, what are the consequences long term? Yeah, I mean, this is critical that we understand that what we do will actually end up impacting people that we will never know, right? Uh, that our family lines will go on and people will either have been uh, had the faith passed on to them or will not have based on what we do. Now, don't get me wrong. God's at all of this. I'm not saying just us. But but when we're thinking about our actions, it is critical to know that our children's children's will be influenced by what we do. So let us fear the Lord, let us repent, let us trust in his forgiveness, uh, rejoice in his life so that this might be passed on to former or to future generations. Pastor, 30 seconds, how would you summarize this chapter? Yeah, I think again, it's God's ultimate consequence for all of this messing around with other gods and not following in God's ways. We are to be warned by it uh, that we should not walk in those ways of the nations or the unbelievers around us, and we should delight in God's ways and seek to walk in them. And where we have not, let us turn to Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, the one who washes us clean. Pastor Philip Hoppe of Peace Lutheran and St. Paul Lutheran in Finlandson and Bruno, Minnesota, giving us God's strong word from 2 Kings chapter 17. Pastor Hoppe, thank you for being our guest. So glad to be with you again. Saints of our Lord, fear the Lord and no other gods. Repent and believe. This is why God gives us his Holy Spirit so that we not only that we can see Christ, but that we see the other gods and idols that we have who have nothing but empty promises. For our Lord Jesus doesn't give us empty promises, but he gives us an empty tomb, which fills us with hope, promise, forgiveness, life, and salvation. This is what we have, and this is what we cling to. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.